Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. And welcome to Mindspace. This is Jeff Boucher, and I'm here with Evan. How are you, Evan? Good, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's, uh, it's good to talk to you. I'm excited about the show today. Yes. Yes, we have a great guest today. Um, but before we get into that, there's a little sad news we'd like to talk about, which was Alex Trebek. Yeah, the passing of Alex Trebek, you know, who uh, a signature figure for a lot of people um, when they think of television game shows, you know. I guess he and Pat Sajak uh, would be like the, and Richard Dawson and, you know, are that uh, top tier where they become as big as the brand, maybe bigger than the brand that they're part of. I guess Steve Harvey in a different way. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. But uh, you know, you know, Evan, I was on Jeopardy. I know. I was going to actually ask you about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very curious. Did you, did you see the episode? Um, no, I don't think I. Oh, then I won. <laughs> well congratulations okay. on your win <laughs> yeah you know what uh i gotta admit uh i have to issue an apology here because i i just misrepresented the truth i actually there was uh there was three contestants on the episode i attended and uh, there was a person that won and then there was a person that didn't win and then there was a person that didn't didn't win and i was that person <laughs> That's every every Jeopardy episode structurally fits just about like that. But I, yeah, I'm sorry yeah. to hear that you were that that third person. Well, I was a winner, but I wasn't the first winner or the second winner. I was kind of the third winner. Gotcha. Everybody's a winner on Jeopardy. Well, that makes it sound not so great, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I, I take pride in. I'll tell you, I take pride in how I got on the show because it's a difficult process, and my um, it had nothing to do with being a journalist. I, I wasn't doing it for a story or anything like that. Um, and, uh, and I had a interesting encounter with Alex, you know, um, uh, as people know, you know, his personality, he can be a little droll and also a little prickly, I think, you know, in, in some of the moments that he had, yeah. um, I think it was part of his, his persona as the, uh, the all knowing kind of demanding school school headmaster or something like that you know? <laughs> yeah so so you know it's uh i didn't win as a, as i uh, now have confessed but um i'm pretty proud of just getting on the show it's as people know it's it's not an easy show to get on the i went down and took a test and i didn't do this as a journalist i wasn't writing a story or anything but this is back when i was at the la times uh, but i did it as a civilian so to speak and uh they give you a sheet uh, with 50 blanks on it and you're going to write down the question, so to speak, on those 50 blanks. And uh, I was in a room with about 80 people and they flash a category on the, on the screen 
and you're they administer the test there on the set you're in the studio audience seating and they'll flash a question up or it's the answer so to speak and then uh, uh the category the answer and then you have to write down you don't have to phrase it in the form of a question but you write down the one word or two words that are the essential nugget of information like you know one of them could be category u.s presidents answer he was the first president reelected, and you just write down washington and that would be enough to get that right so there's 50 and you're only allowed to miss four if you miss five uh your test is uh deemed a failure of the 80 people I took it with, there was four of us that passed. Um, and you find this out, but they, they come in and they say, if we say your name, stay. If you don't hear your name, please leave. And they read out four names and <laughs> all the other people stand up and walk out. Do you do it the day of? Yeah. So yeah, like you, you just, take the test and you stay to... Oh, I'm sorry. Do you do this, the recording of the show? No, no. In fact, what they tell you at the end of that, um, the four the four of us, they say, okay, now we're going to have you come up on stage and do a little practice. We'll give you a few categories and, you know, do it just like it's gameplay, but don't worry too much about winning or losing. Unless you get every question or answer correct or miss everyone, we're not really paying too much attention to that. Uh, we're mostly checking to see how you handle Com yourself, your yeah. mannerisms, your comfort level, things like that. So the four of us uh, did that. And then um, they said that you'll be in our system for a year. Um, we'll contact you. You'll probably have about a month's notice. And uh, if at the end of that year, we haven't contacted you, you'll be kicked out of the system and then you have to come back and take the test again. <laughs> it's all on you. It's all on you. And you don't know really if you've crossed the finish line or if you're just in a holding pattern. Um, so I left, but I felt kind of good about passing the test. And um, I get a call the very next day at my desk at work and they said, there's a blue, hi, this is Jeopardy. I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, and they said, can you be here tomorrow? And I, so suddenly we went from some time in the next year, possibly we'll give you at least a month to, can you be here tomorrow? And what it was is that um, there was a blizzard back East. So they couldn't get their contestants from the East coast that they had planned on. So they were getting people that were local that they knew were active and available. And then, I was on that short list um, and they, they, I had one note from the producer, make sure to bring the leather jacket you were wearing during the, the test. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, they just like my jacket. That's why I made it onto the show. Um, and I went down, they record five episodes at a time um, during a day. Back to Jeopardy back to back. is just like a well-oiled machine. Everything you're telling me is just like, like, I mean, I guess when the show's going that long, it is just a well-oiled machine, but exactly. five and episodes yes. a day is insane. Yeah, exactly. And um, they do it at CBS. And so I go over there and um, they tell you to bring uh, four changes of clothes with you. So say you get on the first show that they record that day and say you win and continue to win. You, they don't want you to look like a homeless person only has one set of clothes. So they have you change in between, even though it's all the same day. So stuff like that's kind of interesting. And then they sequester the contestant pool uh, you're like a jury basically. And they want to make sure that people don't have access to someone from the production that might slip them questions, answers, or some other part of the process that might be tainted. Uh, so they kind of go above and beyond, you know, the expected game show kind of etiquette and protocols. 
So you sit there and uh, they draw straws, literally draw their straws that are drawn and the short straws, the three short straws of our jury pool, so to speak, will be the first contestants. And you know, you have that adrenaline, you pull the straw. I got a long straw. I sat and I watched second episode. I watched third episode. I watched fourth episode. I watched that fourth episode. I really wished I had gotten on it because one of the categories was Rolling Stones and I'm a big music guy. You know, uh, I used to be a music writer at the LA Times and I love film as well. But, uh, you know, I see this Rolling Stone category and I think most of the answers in the category went unanswered or were answered incorrectly. And there was a daily double and I was just groaning because I knew that if I'd been on there, that one, that I would have had a lot of traction with that category. Um, It was not meant to be though, because I the fifth one, by this point, I'm really ragged. It's a long day and uh, I'm ready to go home. But of course, that's when I drew the short straw. I get up on the podium and um, when my categories are revealed, I get things like Ivy League schools and British painters. And, you know, Evan, I didn't even know that England had painters. You know, I, I, I knew, I, I'd heard of Whistler. And um, beyond that, I knew Whistler's mother. Um, and that's about it. I couldn't so, name one. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, Whistler. Okay, well, now I know that one. Yeah. And he painted a thing called Whistler's mother, which was a painting of his mother. Um, Interesting. That's about all I got. So I didn't do well. Uh, Ivy League, you know, I went to a state university and, you know, barely got out of there. Uh, so <laughs> it was not my day. And, um, but, you know, there was an interesting interaction with, with Mr. Trebek, you know, and uh, I, I was a guy that had watched Jeopardy for many, many years, you know, all through, all the way back to high school. Um, you know, uh, it had been like a tradition and I'd always fancied myself a pretty good trivia guy. But when I got up there, you know, they, you do a couple uh, categories uh, before the first commercial break and I answered a couple and I answered wrong. You know, I missed, I, I think I was a little nervous, you know, uh, they say 10 million people watch Jeopardy, uh, which is great to hear right before you go on there. Like, remember 10 million people watch Jeopardy. I'm like, I didn't need to hear that right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and maybe because I missed a couple and I was actually a negative, uh, you know, a couple hundred or so when um, they go to commercial break. And right after, I don't know if you uh, remember the order of the show, but after the first commercial break, they come back. And then that's when you hear the voiceover. Johnny does the uh, the sponsor information. To today's contestants, you know, like a uh, second place contestant will win a trip to Puerto Vallarta or whatever. Um, and while he's doing that, uh, Alex is making chit chat with the three contestants who's, who've played a bit, but haven't been formally introduced to the audience. And that's what's going to happen as soon as Johnny's done with those announcements. Alex is going to go down the row and talk to each of the the contestants and get a a tidbit about them. And backstage, you fill out, there's a a little slip of paper that has three lines on it. And you write down three things about yourself, personal information. So I wrote down, uh, I am a journalist. I write for the, I'm a, uh, a journalist. I write for the LA Times. And um, I write about film and music mostly. Uh, And the second one was, um, I have a comic book collection of 14,000 comics, which I thought would give them a good chance to make fun of me. (laughs) And then the third one was about um, a book I had published in 1997. I I published a book about um, a uh, story I had written as a crime reporter. It was about a... uh, female police officer who was a former gang member. And it's a true story and an inspirational story. 
And uh, I mentioned that, and that book's called Two Badges. And what I wrote down is, uh, I've re- I wrote a book about a gangbanger turned cop um, in Santa Ana. So these three things are in his pocket. And as they come back from the commercial, he starts with me, because I'm the, in the third position. Um, but what the audience doesn't know is that during the commercial break, he comes to me and says, Jeff, it says here that you wrote a book about a gangbanger turned cop. I said, yes, that's right. And, um, you know, we're, we're there on stage, but if people can't read lips, they can't really see what, they don't know what we're talking about because the mm-hmm. audio is off uh, for the, the audience at home. But he says, you know, Jeff, when I see the word, when I see the word gangbanger, I think of, uh, I think of a woman that has sex with eight men. And my jaw dropped and I said, uh, uh, well, you don't have to say gangbanger. He holds up a finger and goes, you know, I suppose, to be fair, it could be a man that has sex with eight women. And I'm like, gang member? You could say gang member. And, and just then they're going, uh, three, two, one, you know, coming back off the, uh, the overhead announcements. And uh, now I'm just like, you know, I'm beside myself. <laughs> Actually, at that moment, I'm worried that this is about to really take an unexpected turn on national television. And um, so he looks at me and holds up the card and says, Jeff, it says here you've written a book about a, and I'm leaning forward like with every anticipation of what he's about to say, with every, uh, you wrote a book here about a gang member turned police officer. And I'm like, yes. And by that point, I, <laughs> I barely remembered the title was two badges, but I managed to get that out. And then we get back to the show and I actually managed a little comeback after that and did pretty well, got a daily double and some stuff. So maybe Alex was just uh, trying to uh, uh, help me relax by th- uh, throwing a curveball. Yeah. But uh, it was an interesting uh, um, experience. I was really disappointed to lose uh, because I really expected to win, quite honestly, or I wouldn't have done it. Um, but uh, I did at that third place gift prize was a uh, in, was a thousand dollar gift certificate at the discovery store and i ended up waiting for their telescope sale and got a two thousand dollar telescope that my kids and i have enjoyed for many many years so that is awesome so you have yeah been- that was pretty cool and uh it was a good story and i have the photo of me and alex and uh you know i heard from a bunch of ex-girlfriends and teachers and a lot of people <laughs> 10 million i hear actually watch jeopardy and a lot of the reason that they tune in for all those years and the, the reason that I tuned in for all those years was, was, uh, was the host was really, really good. And the questions were really good. And the show was assumed that its viewers were smart. And unlike so many game shows, which assumed the exact opposite. But yeah. um, I always respected the show and I always respected Alex. And I always wanted him to like me and I wanted to impress him. I'm not sure um that i did either of those things but uh i sure uh treasure the memory going on that show and i wear it as a badge of honor uh that i was able to get on the show um and uh there's nobody quite like him so it's it's a loss for a lot of fans and uh uh he did good things on television and a lot of people don't so yeah cheers you know cheers to him you know i don't know if you ever thought about it like this but to me hearing that story about him you know saying that to you it might have been like 
when he's saying the word gangbanger, he's saying, you know, a lot of people out there might think of the word like this. So it was in my mind and it, maybe it was like a teaching moment yeah. for him to you where he's like, I'm not going to say this word and here's why quickly let's think of a word of which we can replace, you know, but in like exactly. the Alex Trebek smoothest way possible, that's how he handled it, which is well, very it's cool. certainly the most succinct way. Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it, it, I was befuddled for a moment, but, uh, as I said, I was already a little, um, anxious. So that yeah. I was probably projecting and you're probably exactly right. Um, and that is a term that, you know, gangbanging in, in California, it, it's so part of the local lexicon because of, you know, our familiarity with the Crips and the Bloods and, and just the history of it all. That, mm -hmm. that word, it's not a pothole that we step in as in a conversational uh, discussion, you know, but it's uh, on the path to conversation. But in other parts of the country, you're exactly right. That's a jagged word that has only the porn uh, connotation to it for a lot of people. And um, for that reason alone, it's a good note, you know. Um, so I'm glad you you said that because it's, it's you're probably exactly right. I mean, it was probably his way of um, making sure that he and I and the show came off in the best way possible, which is what you know he did for a very long time at a very high level. So he he was an expert at that, just handling yeah, any mean, situation. Yeah, yeah, integrity and quality, and you know it, when Jeopardy had a question wrong or answer wrong when Jeopardy had uh, anything that was slightly controversial about the, the facts presented, you know, it was like a news story. And, and uh, uh, that speaks highly to the, the, the credibility and caliber of the production and the, and the, the brand and the legacy going all the way back to Merv Griffin and uh, you know, who created the show and composed the theme song and had that sort of cerebral um, way of approaching showbiz, you know, mm -hmm. so uh, um, yeah. what is a very good television series the answer <laughs> is Jeopardy yeah so. well that was a great story and you know it's sad to see him go but you know he leaves us with a lot of great episodes to watch yes yes absolutely absolutely and, and like I said you know it's just so few things on TV are high-minded or educational and at the same time entertaining and when you mm -hmm. find them uh, you have to celebrate them so well, I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna try to dig up that episode. I'm gonna watch it. Yeah. Well, you'll like the leather jacket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's the only reason I'm gonna watch it. I'll send you a photo sometime. You'll get a kick out of it. Great. Yeah. Maybe share it on your socials so people can see. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but uh, you know, we let's get to our episode now. With we have a great guest today named Ethan Sachs, a fellow journalist and a fellow writer. Correct. Yeah, Ethan Sachs, uh, whose work uh, appears, uh, you know. Uh, over NBC.com, and um, he, before that, I, when I met him originally, about a decade ago, um, he was writing for the New York Daily News, and he wrote there uh, for quite a while. Uh, at that time, I was at the LA Times, and we were rivals, but there were certain rivals that, um, cer certain uh, professional rivalries I had with people uh, on that beat, because, you know, entertainment coverage is so competitive. Um, and there were a few that I really, really enjoyed them as people. And then I was able to, we were able to have a very respectful competition where it brought out the best in both of us. And Ethan's on that list, Ethan Saxon, as is uh, Anthony Bresnikin, who was 
at USA Today and then Entertainment Weekly and now at Vanity Fair and Jeff Jensen, who was at Entertainment Weekly and was doing the stuff before I was. Um, those, those would be some of the competitors, but there's others, but those are the ones that spring to mind. But he's just one of the nicest guys, and I, um, a big admirer, too, is that he's uh, extended his career now into comic book writing, and he's got uh, some great credits uh, under his belt and uh, plenty more to come. And so, yeah, he's a great guest. I'm happy to uh, introduce him to you, and, and uh, I think you're going to be impressed with him. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited um, to speak to him. You know, he's done some Star Wars writing, um, he's doing something that he's going to tell us about. I'm not sure what yet, but, uh, uh, he's been writing something currently. Um, he's done a couple superhero comics, but he's just a, from what you've told me, he's just a huge fan and he's excited that now that he gets to, you know, be on the other side and be a creator. And it's always great to see fans be creators as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's get to it. Yeah, definitely. Here is Ethan Sachs. So Ethan, welcome, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm, I'm well. Like, I mean, all things considered, in 2020. But and thanks for having me. Uh, you're you're going to be welcome here forever, my friend. Uh, so you do so many things. I mean, you're uh, a journalist uh, working for NBC, and you had been at the New York Daily News for many years. Uh, that's many that's, many years. Yeah, like 20. Uh, I heard you say, is that right? 20. Yep. Wow. I was at the LA Times for 21. So we, uh, wow. between the two of us, we are old media. <laughs> yes. like Unfor- my, unfortunately in every sense yeah exactly well we're also uh doing new things which is exciting uh teaching new tricks to old media dogs but uh um you were writing comics obviously and had great success with that which is something i'm trying to do now which is kind of fun but uh i right. would love to have the kind of success you've had and doing things like star wars working on the star wars uh ip and and then of course the old man hawkeye uh, really sort of planted a flag for you uh, as a comics creator. That That's like a whole, that's pretty cool. And to, to be doing both, it's 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 an impressive trick, you know, uh, not trick, but it's an impressive like uh, feat because it's it's not easy. It's, it's different kind of thinking, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not sure if it's a, you know, career change or a midlife crisis. The jury's still <laughs> out on, on that, but um, definitely it's a great balance for me. Uh, you know, I, I work about two days a week uh, for NBCnews.com, the digital side, and uh, cover a lot of COVID, a lot of sort of weekend stories, feature stories. And then uh, I put on a, a different hat, my Star Wars hat, which uh, <laughs> I'm wearing now. And I write comic books. Uh, it's a, it's just a really fun balance for me. That's great. Well, I, I had the, 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 the luxury and the honor of being uh, sort of at near distance kind of uh, when you started uh, doing the comics. Like, you know, I, and I remember you talking about it as it was ramping up and, and uh, then seeing it happen. And then the, uh, and, and then also you, you did one of the best things a, a person can do, uh, which is as a friend that you gave me something to read that you wrote and it was great. Which is great. It's like, I mean, like when somebody gives you something and you read it, you're like, oh no, now what am I going to say? You know, like, and this was, uh, this was not one of those at all. Like I, uh, I highly, highly recommend your comics work. Um, did you have a lot of trepidation at the beginning and, and, or do you still have trepidation about, do you, do you feel a comfort in that medium yet? Uh, every, every day I feel a trepidation. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, it's, it's funny because there's a sort of a not so secret origin story uh, which I owe a lot to Joe Casada, um, yeah. 
you know, Marvel fame. And uh, we're good friends. I, I know him for uh, about 20 years now. And it started out as a source and we just became friends because we both live in New York. Um, and the short version of this story is in 2016, there's the, the sort of fake holiday, or I shouldn't say fake holiday, but the sort of internet holiday of May the 4th, you know, May the 4th Fourth. be with you. Yeah. And I had interviewed the actor who played Greedo, uh, spacing a little bit, but I think it's Paul Blake. And yeah. he's since passed away, but uh, at the, not related to the interview, I swear. Um, yeah. But I asked him, you know, does it bother you that there's generations of kids who think that Greedo shot first and missed, yeah. you know, from this short little table? <laughs> and he just, he was so funny. He went on this whole comedy routine where he, he's obviously been thinking about this a lot. Where he's like, you know, uh, Greedo, I know he's myopic with those eyes, but you know, obviously he's in the wrong business, you know, should be oh, in flower true. arranging. And he, he had this whole thing. And so from this conversation, I thought, you know, and he turned serious at the end and he said it was in the script on Shoots Alien. You know, it was, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, it, it was <laughs> yeah. So I sort of in my head thought, um, you know, uh, Rashomon, Kurosawa's classic, but through you know, talking about the, the, the killing Three of Greedo. Yeah, the so I, Yeah, so I thought, okay, well, I would love to do this story as a comic. And so next time I was out with, with Joe, we we're at a Mets game, and um, he's a big Mets fan. I said, hey, do you mind if I send you a spec script just for fun? You know, if on the off chance it got published, I don't think it would, uh, you know, donate to charity or whatever. I just think it's a funny story. Like, I, I just had this idea in my head. And he said, sure, whatever. Like that was, was no, no, um, def definitely was not giving me any kind of encouragement to do it. Right. I, I ended up writing it. Uh, I'd never written a comic script before, but I'd seen enough uh, covering the beat that it could sort of reverse engineer it. Hmm. And um, I sent it to him, didn't hear back for months. And right. then I was uh, coming back from Japan. Uh, my wife's Japanese and we were visiting my in-laws on September 7th, 2016. Uh, and I turned my phone back on and there was an email that changed my life. And it was basically like, Hey, I read this. You could do this for a living. Like let's talk when you get back. And so Fantastic. long story short that it never got published. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure Lucasfilm took one look at it and I was like, I don't know what to make of this, but this yeah. is just not going to happen. Uh, but it did get my foot in the door. Uh, the editor in chief at the time, Axel Alonso oh, yeah. liked it enough to say, Hey, what characters do you think you could write? Um, you know, we'd like to give you a shot on something. Uh, the next year, the entirety of the next year, I, I had one eight-page story. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, what was happening at the Daily News was they were offering buyouts. Like, right. it was fortuitous. I'd been there 20 years. It was like seven months pay. So it was like, if I was going to try, so try something new, that was the time. And so yeah. I did. And eventually it led to Old Man Hawkeye, which was like my first, you know, quote-unquote hit in the world, you know, in that world. And yeah. Amazing. You know, and I wonder, you know, when I read your work, I, I wonder how much being a journalist um, informs the dialogue that you, because you, your dialogue is great. Like, oh, the well, cadence, yeah, the cadence of it, the rhythm of it, the way it works and the way that when it does, uh, like when people speak and it's not a complete sentence, the way when people speak and it's a little jagged, you know, a lot of times I think in the process of writing dialogue, a lot of people make everything sound like it was uttered in a perfect vacuum circumstance of conversation. It doesn't interact with the world, but journalists know from quoting people that it's tough to get a, a, a yes. legible, <laughs> thoughtful quote from somebody. Um, do you think all that background kind of comes up, bubbles up in the dialogue? 
Um, I hope so. Um, I think a little bit of a learning experience with the, with the dialogue because I, you know, at first when I started, I didn't really realize how much, like you don't want to have the word, the word balloons sort of dribble all over the art. So yeah. a lot of it becomes a little bit more stilted and shorter than maybe like I was, I was writing. So yeah. uh, I think necessity being the mother of invention, I think the dialogue got a little sharper, not because of necessarily me, but because of the mechanics of having to say a little less, uh, you know, in a very visual medium. Um, yeah, yeah, because it's kind of got to be almost staccato, like yeah, at some yeah. point, especially if there's action, right? Like, yeah, and yeah. I learned that over, you know, a few. It took me a few issues to sort of get that, because you would see, like, okay, I want to step back and and let the let the artists shine. So, oh yeah, of course, you know, with Old Man Hawkeye, uh, you know, which is a prequel to the world that readers met in Old Man Logan. Yep, is that a, accurate? Yes. And, uh, you know, we find Clint Barton, uh, who has, you know, was introduced to Marvel Comics as originally as, as a villain in the Avengers. And then later uh, he uh, became he was a giant man for a while. Right. Wasn't he? Like, yeah. Uh, in the 70s, I think. And then, um, you know, the West Coast Avengers and, and had a lot of that. All that character history established. But you fast forward to uh, a pretty desolate version of the character. Uh, where he's uh, losing the one thing he can't lose, right? Which is his eyesight. Yeah. What a great uh, premise. And, and for you, uh, that success, as you were saying, you know, that was the first really big hit. Uh, what do you, when you look back on it now, what is it your favorite thing about it? Like as, as, as far as the story or, or, as, or as far as the success of it, like some component that you kind of uh, have a lot of sentiment for? I think, uh, well, first of all, the editor who, uh, who was attached to it, Mark Basso, really took a risk by, um, by picking me. Uh, I was lucky that the artist that they picked, uh, Marco Cacchetto, was yeah. this sort of rising star, and he ascended completely, like, while he was on my series. He's now drawing Daredevil, one of the marquee Marvel books. And um, so I was lucky to sort of be pulled in his wake. And then the other thing, too, is... Um, it was a bit of a risk for Marvel because t about 10 years earlier, uh, Mark Miller and Steve McNiven did Old Man Logan, which was the inspiration behind the movie Logan. And it was such a popular comic. And so here I was as nobody given a prequel. Um, and, but what I did like about it was it was not like this sort of, it wasn't like trying to do a prequel for Watchmen, right? This wasn't, it was the beloved comic, but it was kind of a entertaining you know, uh, yeah. sort of B movie romp kind of thing rather than, yeah. than, you know, um, criterion collection. So, uh, there was a little less pressure and uh, what I liked because it was a prequel, uh, the, the sort of sidekick character was, was Hawkeye and he was already blind in that, in that one. So I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to do the prequel, I had certain things, you know, certain things from Hawkeye's past that I wanted to incorporate, but I wanted it to be a story of him losing the eyesight. And, uh, he was, so basically the story was 50 years, uh, 45 years before Old Man Hawkeye, the Red Skull got all the villains together, major supervillains together, and they killed off just about every hero. And what, among the ones that were left was Logan, uh, Wolverine, who, uh, not to spoil anything, but he would never pop it. He swore he would never pop his claws again. And then there was Hawkeye, who was essentially left alive because he was not a threat to anybody. So he had to live with that, that he was, um, and he sort of, he had a family and he didn't really want to risk anything. 
So he's sort of waiting for a chance to, to you know, avenge. Right. Uh, and then, then he starts going blind and he has to, to do something now. And I, I won't, you know, uh, go right. too much into the plot, but so it very much became a ticking um, clock story. Mm-hmm. And I, I barred a little bit from Tarantino on a number of Tarantino movies to sort of incorporate there. Uh, but one of the things was, is a very Kill Bill type structure where he's after some, some heroes turned villains who sort of betrayed him. And he's going through sort of one by one to get to the leader. So there was a little bit of that. Um, and uh, he's being chased by a couple of villains because once, once a hero pops back up on the radar... Right. Uh, in this mixed up world, one of the supervillains, Bullseye, is sort of like the marshal, the law. So to sort of keep the status quo, he's hunt. And also because he's been bored all these years, he's sort of hunting the main character. Yeah. So um, it's when great, I. Great oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but it wasn't guaranteed that I would get it. So like when I was called, like usually the way the, something like that works is they'll ask several writers to come up with pitches. Right. And then, um, you know, they'll pick the pitch that they like best. And so what I did is Mark was going on vacation. So he told me, okay, well, I'm going to go on vacation. If you can do it by the end of this month. I was like, when are you going on vacation? He's like in a week and a half. So I like did a lot of research. I pulled some all nighters and I got it to him before he went on vacation. Cause I figured oh. maybe the oh, other writers would do it after. So oh. I wanted to get to him like when he went on vacation. So he would have like a week and a half where he was like trapped with it, you know, like yeah. if you read it on the plane or whatever. And deadlines, no are deadlines are good for, for guys like us too. Like yes. the urgency yes. of it, you know? Yeah, so I uh, I don't know if that was a factor or not that he read it first, but uh-huh. yeah. oh, and that, that's really cool. That uh, so like, uh, and he got back to you right after the vacation, or did it take a little while? He did got you? back to me actually. I was on vacation with my daughter. We were in uh, Nashville for the eclipse a few years oh, ago, wow. two thousand eighteen, and uh, he got a call and he's like, "Can you can you like be in the office tomorrow?" Like Axel and I want to talk to you about the thing and. I was like, actually, I'm in Nashville. Can we do it like in two days? And so oh, the second I, I literally landed on the plane, dropped my stuff off, showered, and like went to the Marvel offices. So wow, that's great, dude. That, what a, what a what a fun experience! And that's that was really smart to give him that before the vacation. Not, not only do you get his full attention, but I think like like I was saying, like there's a, a distilling factor to urgency. You know, like uh, the, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. You know, for me, like. If I, I'm better at cooking things than baking things, because like you know, it's like I forget. That's, that's a great. That's a great expression. I'm gonna have to bar that. I will credit you. I will. Uh, I'm a journalist. I'll attribute it. Oh, that's 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 nice. You know, Neil Young said though, is uh, amateurs borrow professional steel. So you know, that's, <laughs> that's also uh, that's always been one of my favorite quotes. So when you were talking about the, um, uh, with your just experience with the story and the premise and everything, just two random thoughts. Is one. Uh, bullseye versus hawkeye that's so damn satisfying to have you know the marksman versus the 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 perfect you know uh targeting machine Mm -hmm. uh uh so that was just you know that alone gets people in the door so i mean that that's that's great to have something that uh sort of crowd pleasing you know just right off the top and then the second more obscure thought is thinking about green arrow uh over at dc and what happened to him in dark knight Mm -hmm. um returns the Frank Miller uh, uh, graphic novel classic, you know, he loses an arm if I remember right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, these, it's not real good to be the bow and arrow guys. Don't do well. Yes. <laughs> like the bow and arrow guys don't not not a good shelf life. Well, I I love that about Hawkeye. When you look at you know his Avengers teammates, he's by far and away 
uh, one of the weakest, you know, yeah, he has no superpowers. And also his personality, which is a little bit captured in, in the movies, but really more in the comics, yeah. He really does everything by the seat of his pants. So it's, it's, it's amazing that he survives from panel one to panel six on any given page. It's just, right. you know, you're sure he's going to get himself killed. He has never goes in with a plan. He never, um, you know, he's not Batman. He's not thinking three steps ahead of, of uh, he's not Captain America. He's, he's just yeah. kind of a schlub. And I always related yeah. to him the most because I kind of feel, um, you know, not that I am that competent in, in any skill, but I, I felt I relate, he was more relatable than most of the Absolutely. Avengers. Yeah, and, and he's got that DNA of, he started as a bad guy, so he's kind of a little bit of like, he's, you know, he's the guy that, just casing the joint, he's the guy that <laughs> knows, like, he, he, he's got the, the street smarts, like, not street smarts, yeah. but the kind of, uh, he's got that little edge to him that he's, and scruffy, he's a scruffy yeah. and, and reckless, you know, yeah. um, you know, in a way that, uh, you know, Captain America and Tony Stark and Hank Pym, none of those guys, they're, you know, none of those guys are like that. And, and the Hulk, you know, just leave that off the list. Although the Hulk wasn't really in the, the Avengers much in the comics. That's the thing that, yeah. I mean, there's very few issues really, uh, relatively. But um, yeah, and, and in movies, like, he, I don't know, he's a little too blue steel. Like, you know, he's doing that like yeah. thing. The, he poses too much, you know? And, like I can't imagine Hawkeye posing. Like I, I can imagine, like you know, um, stealing your your niece, but I can't imagine them like uh, striking a pose. You know, it's just that's not yeah. the Hawkeye that I think of. You know, I agree. It's it's hard. To, I mean, you know, in a movie, it's hard to showcase everybody, and he kind of gets lost behind the big three or four. You know. Yeah, and you're right. He holds his own in the in the Avengers, and for a long, long time. I mean, in the comics, Black Widow's not really in the lineup very long. Mm -hmm. uh, she's in and out really. Yeah. Uh, unlike the films but uh yeah he's the only mere mortal that really just hangs the whole time i mean everybody else has something you know like uh <laughs> he's he's the only one that's like a batman so just a guy in a suit with gadgets you know yeah uh, so to his credit now it occurs to me too uh you're gonna like the segue uh that star wars uh and if you took old man hawkeye and you put him in the star wars universe you would get the mandalorian and I'm curious what you think uh, of The Mandalorian, uh, which is now obviously back uh, in its big uh, second season on Disney Plus with uh, Dave Filoni and John Favreau at the, the controls. I love The Mandalorian series. Um, I, think, I think it is very freeing for Star Wars to sort of drift away and tell uh, other stories than, than the Star Wars, than the uh, Skywalker's you know, saga. Sure. I love the Skywalker saga, but it is such a big galaxy and there's so much potential. Um, and they're, they're starting to sort of cast their eyes on all that potential. So, you know, it is, um, you know, I love the Western feel, um, you know, the characters, not just the Mandalorian, but the characters are very interesting. I love the way they have these nice little callbacks to yeah. continuity without it being, you know, you can be a total uh, rookie and you're not losing anything. But, you know, someone posted this and I didn't even think about it the first two times I watched the the, the most recent episode. Uh, yes. uh, you know, spoiler alert. Um, yeah, it's okay. But we, they had we, sand we, people. We, they, they have Tuscan. Yeah, yeah. Tuscan Raiders. And they were, they were sort of riding in a single line. Right. And there, there was a callback to from A New Hope where, yeah. where uh, Obi-Wan says, you know, they, they ride single file to hide their numbers. Yeah. Right. And it was... I mean, you don't have to 
have ever seen a new hope to just appreciate the, the episode. But if you did, that was just like a great, a great, you know, it's the small things like that that make a difference. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't stick out uh, as like an obvious, like reference to something that makes people scratch their heads. It works, you know, uh, just on its own organically. Yeah. But then if you have that sense of the history, it, it it's a nice underscore and it kind of a little nod to the past. Uh, I love that stuff. I, I, yeah. I saw a random one the other day. Uh, I was watching a 30 rock. I a show I hadn't watched in a long time, but uh, it was on and uh, Alan Alda was on playing uh, Alec Baldwin's dad. Uh, but he's a liberal guy and he's just been identified by DNA, but he's, he, there's a reference. He says, you know, you, chickens and babies this isn't comedy uh he, he's talking about something skit that they're working on but like i almost fell over like the it's the best callback because that last episode of mash the big heavy last episode is that his character hawkeye has this traumatic experience where do you have you seen it do you know i what? have it's been a lot i mean I, I literally have not seen it since the day well, i'm gonna spoil it just because it's from the yeah. 80s i think it's, it's i think, I think okay. the statute of limitations is it's right turn it off if you if haven't seen the last episode of mash if you're if you're about if you're one episode shy of finishing the series on um anyway he he's on a bus and full of civilians and their uh uh the uh enemy troops are very close by and uh are heavily armed and if they find them they're all going to be killed and there's a um a chicken that is making a lot of noise and he's screaming at this woman or whisper screaming stop that damn chicken come quiet the chicken stop it you know the people are coming and um the lady uh smothers the chicken but then at the end of the episode you find out that because uh, this is all taking place and he's recounting it while talking to a psychiatrist um and he, it, the chicken was a baby so the lady smothered her baby and wow. killed her baby because he was telling her to keep it quiet and so he lived and they all lived but the baby was killed it is the damn heaviest <laughs> into a sitcom in history uh obviously yeah but uh i, I can't believe i didn't i didn't remember that it's a tr it's, it's a shocking like yeah. uh, plot thing uh and you know has a lot of pathos and stuff and i think it's one of the reasons it's people like uh, we're like with the Seinfeld show they felt like they had to add something you know, substance it's mm. part of the pressure of, it's from that mash tradition I think but uh it's just a great callback see now and all they go eh, chickens babies I don't think that's funny uh it's just like wow you know like I've been waiting for that since I was a kid I didn't even know it uh so pretty wow. random. I uh, both those episodes now yeah yeah it's just it was great uh and, and I really like 30 Rock and I, I somehow I never saw this episode so it was a uh, kind of a fun random thing now speaking of random things uh, well first before we do the random thing you have uh always have some projects on tap but there's one that you're working on that uh, is with other folks and uh nbc's involved and it's about covid uh could you tell us a little bit about that real quick and yeah sure so there's a a, a new relatively new comic book publisher called AWA Studios. And within AWA Studios, there's uh, an imprint called Upshot uh, Studios. And then that is actually run by Axel Alonso, the former oh. Marvel editor-in-chief who, who uh, brought me in, you know, with Joe to Joe Quesada to Marvel. So um, they launched their first comics. Literally, they published their first comics to great fanfare the week everything shut down. In fact, their their flagship title, uh, "The Resistance," is about a global pandemic that causes that 
you know, brings about superheroes. So they, comic book stores shut down, the distributor, of, uh, major distributor of comics shut down. Uh, and meanwhile, both Axel and I live in New York, which was becoming very quickly the global uh, epicenter. Um, and I mean, it was obviously very intense and scary to live here. I had friends who work in emergency rooms. I ended up knowing two people who, uh, two friends of mine died of COVID. Um, but at the time in late March, he calls me and he said, I'm looking for, I have an idea and I'm looking for someone who can write a comic book script, but is also a reporter. So the Venn diagram is not that big. Um, so it wasn't like, it's like, I thought of you over, you know, hundreds of thousands of potential people. Um, but so basically the idea was that we would do, and it was going to originally, you know, maybe run on webtoons but sort of do an online comic and hopefully we would get enough budget to do enough to collect in a trade paperback where we follow like real life people through this pandemic. And he, you know, he was like, you know, maybe it's a grocery worker or a store worker, maybe, you know, it's a emergency room doctor. Um, so he sort of left me to my own devices. Um, he paired me with this artist, this Croatian artist named Dalibor Talajik. Wow. And he uh, just, he used to do Deadpool. It just, it, mm -hmm. he, has an amazing style. It's a very powerful emotional style. So anyway, uh, I started with two people I knew. Um, one person uh, is a, a New York Daily News reporter, a crime reporter who was out on the streets right when the first, you know, COVID deaths were starting to happen. He would be knocking on doors and basically putting himself in danger to tell this story. And then the other one is a, one of my best friends is an emergency room doctor in Toronto. So once I had two to show, I approached strangers and I found them in all sorts of ways on social media. Uh, I've found a, an article uh, and I decided I wanted to do some from around the world. One person uh, caught in the Wuhan lockdown, oh, wow. um, a Italian um, tenor who was kind of went viral for singing from his, um, wow. from his balcony. Uh, I, I got uh, one of the ones I'm very proud of is I got these three scientists from the Seattle flu study that they were like sort of the first ones to discover communities spread in the country in Seattle in uh, um, late February. So like basically showing that it wasn't just like individuals coming from China uh, or Europe, but it was actually spreading within the community. So like they, they uh, and they shared their stories, they shared photographs. Um, it really was a journalist dream to have that kind of access and trust and, uh, uh, so yeah, so now it's finally coming out in a book early December. Uh, Alyssa Milano wrote the forward. <laughs> wow, and, uh, that's yeah. great. That's so really cool. Was did you find that working with an artist? You know, that collaboration is very different than say working with a photojournalist. Um, yeah, because um, with the the artist, they become part of the the communication of the story um, more like uh, directly, you know, yeah. uh, they affected the, the storytelling in a way that uh, while photos maybe complement the written word, this actually changes the, the message. Uh, did you find it was a challenge on that front or? I, I think it was more challenging for the artist because, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously if he's writing Deadpool, he can, you know, have a lot more freedom in this case, like we were telling real life people stories, there had to be details that were correct. Yes. You know, for example, there was one, um, Brooklyn mom who almost died of COVID and it's her story in the hospital. And he drew like a ventilator in her uh, roommate's mouth. Wow. But, uh, you know, as it turns out, the ventilator patients are separated from the, you know, people who were not on ventilators. And so it was, it was a kind of thing where maybe 
95% of the audience would not know the difference, but if you were a doctor, you would know the difference. And so we had to like scrap that panel and, you know, he had to redraw a lot just because it's a little bit of a game of telephone from the script. Sure. So, he, you know, he really worked his, his butt off to, to get those details. Right. So uh, by, by the end, and I checked it with all the, you know, the subjects. So it was pretty accurate in the end. Um, that's great. That's great. Cause that's journalistic. Yeah. So that's, that's the dividing line between, inspired by true events and being journalistic is that you got to fix yeah. it later. You know, that's yeah. the, because you have responsibility to the people that gave you access to their story and, and responsibility to the, the care that they got and such. So that makes yeah. perfect sense. There's, there's been a couple of projects uh, that are, well, there's been quite a few uh, in the journalistic vein of comics, uh, you know, and, and I'm thinking things like Joe Sacco's work, like Palestine, um, you know, um, uh, even things like Alan Moore's From Light, uh, going back, you know, the it's sort of investigative, provocative journalism from the 80s about, you know, uh, different geopolitical stuff. Um, and then AD, do you know about AD? Uh, it's uh, after Deluge, but it's A period, oh, D period. Yes, yes. You remember that one? That was, yes, in, that was about Katrina, and, and that's the yes. close to, to what I think you're, you guys have done with this, and, and that's where, uh, you know, uh, uh, interviews were done uh, with uh, victims and people dealing with the, uh, Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and, and, and the long road back uh, for folks in New Orleans. Uh, and it was really powerful. And that was done online first as a sort of uh, uh, you know, peri periodic uh, sequential storytelling and then gathered up and printed uh, in book form is that uh, is that a fair comparison? That seems pretty. I, I think so. I think one thing that we were very lucky at uh, with, and I, you know, I took the idea to um, my editors at NBC News, and they got it right away. And I think running it on NBC News was a big deal. You know, so it's basically serialized on on, uh, on NBC News. And why I think that's important is Jeez. because I think. I think nonfiction comics is very is an untapped has untapped potential. Yeah. Um, I think what you have is, you know, so much of comics is dominated by superheroes uh, in, in the direct market and in the bookstores. And then you have maybe uh, often like a big journalism uh, outlets may look down on the medium because it's, you know, they associate it with superheroes. Sure. And what I think it does well is it sort of freezes these moments in time and tells them in a way that you can't even do with a, with a cam with, you know, camera because you're, you know, sort of sequential um, and you get access also to their people's heads. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, you're basically telling their story. So it, it I think it, it's a potentially powerful medium if it's taken seriously on both ends, you know, both, uh, you know, as a potential something that journalism outlets can do and also something that publishers can do. Exactly. But then, you know, you have to, people have to buy it. You know, yeah, so, yeah, so, that's uh, true. Just sort of prove that it works. But I, I do think there's untapped potential. I think you're right, and it's it's uh, and kudos to NBC for for doing that. Uh, you know, it's it's not an obvious choice, and it's not um, one without risk. You know, uh, I can see people in the corporate structure seeing risk inherent within that for just credibility and also sensitivity and things like that. Um, but uh, there is some track record too, though. You know, I. I want to say it was Time Magazine, but it might have been Newsweek. I'm a little embarrassed. I can't quite remember, but I know that, uh, I believe, I'm almost certain it was Time. They they ran uh, excerpts from Joe Sacco's work mm -hmm. as uh, journalistic coverage. Uh, 
in comics form of Middle East situations. Uh, they would give them like three pages or four pages. And then, you know, in a very, very different way, uh, you know, New Yorkers giving room to R. Crumb, Robert Crumb, um, uh, but that's uh, typically not really journalistic. That's, that's, that's more uh, kind of trenchant of observation. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really great to see that. It's really cool to see that. And uh, I, if, uh, if it makes money, boy, we should do that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Like that, like uh, you know, newsroom comics. I, I haven't yeah. even thought about that. That's, well, I, I would love to collaborate with you on something. So, oh, man. I, let's do I, it. I promise. Like that's that's uh, it's a done deal, man. Uh, I I'm, we'll figure out what it is. Especially now that I'm trying to write comics, I got like there's there's one I'm doing for heavy metal um, uh, coming up, and uh, there's like three or four other ideas I have, but uh, I have this this book deadline in February uh, that I have to kind of, I, I, I keep, I'm like a kid with an ice cream cone and I keep putting too many scoops on it. And you know, that it's great to have all those flavors, but sooner or later you're going to get some sidewalk action. Like you're going to, you just can't do it all. Yeah, suddenly uh, it's January and you're like, yeah, why? You know, I, I, I'm putting all these things in front of it to make it feel like it's not that close, you know? Like, so like I uh, have to resist that a little bit, but I would love to work with you, man, on anything, um, for sure, for sure. Uh, and I'll tell you what we should do first is just to make sure that we understand what the world looks like and that we agree on it. I have a little exercise for us here. And yeah. I told you about this before you came on. So yes. the listener doesn't think that I'm just like cold. Ambushing me. Yeah, totally ambushing you. Or conversely, that you're so smart that you can just make <laughs> turn on the dime like that because that'd be pretty impressive too. Well, I uh, think when they hear my answers, they're not. There's not going to be any issue with them thinking. I'm so don't worry. No concern about that. Um, and then Evan, you, uh, Evan, our producer, he's going to jump in on this too. But uh, so we were just going to playfully, uh, if the idea is called uh, uh, Greenlight Special, is what I'm calling it. Um, and it's we're each going to pick movies that we would greenlight. These are dream projects, and I uh, a dream project we're going to identify it by. Uh, or define that as any director currently active, any any property or IP, and a, a movie star uh, that you would put in it if if you can think of one. Um, and these are movies that we would do if we had a studio and unlimited resources and access to stuff. So I'll go first, just because let everybody gather their thoughts a little bit. But um, you know, there's a comic book that came out in the 1980s that I have a real soft spot for, and it was a beautifully drawn comic book by. It was beautifully drawn by Brian Boland, uh, and who would later do The Killing Joke, and you know, superstar, one of the great cover artists, you know, uh, and just a really dramatic style that has like a photorealistic quality, and but also like uh, uh, kind of like a Neil Adams style impassioned characters. You know, there's a lot of emotion in them. I think. Uh, well, he did uh, worked on a series called Camelot Three Thousand that came out in the '80s from DC. And it was like a 10 issue series. And the basic premise is the once and future king of England, King Arthur, uh, the, uh, the, the, the possessor of Excalibur. Uh, when he died, uh, his, the reason he's the once and future king is that there's, there's a prophecy that in England's need of greatest, and moment of England's greatest need, he would return uh, to her side and defend her. And the, this book, uh, presents that moment as the year 3000 when the alien invasion takes place. So Knights of the Round Table are, you know, revived. 
uh, in different forms uh, in some cases. One of them comes back as a, a, a woman one, uh, when he wasn't before, which is kind of an edgy idea for the 80s. And uh, uh, one comes back as an alien. And uh, I think that this would be a great movie to see. Like, I'm thinking like a big movie that is, you know, like Excalibur meets, uh, you know, uh, Dune or Excalibur meets uh, Independence Day, like in a, in a weird way. Uh, and uh, so I, I'd like Ridley Scott to direct Russell Crowe as King Arthur in Camelot 3000. So what do, you, what do you guys think? Do you think that, uh, would you buy a ticket for that? I would buy a ticket for that for sure. Yeah? Yeah. Evan, would you buy a ticket for that? Absolutely. And okay, this might be, they did Robin Hood together, correct? That's Wasn't, correct. That's okay, correct. yeah, so yeah, 100% would do that. Yeah, and they, they did Gladiator, and they did Robin Hood, they did Inside Man. Um, they, did a, they did a couple others. Uh, they did... Uh, What's the one with Denzel Washington, uh, American gangster, gangster? Yeah, gangster? yeah. Took me yeah. I keep forgetting that Russell. Crow- yeah, yeah, yeah. He he keeps forgetting too. Uh, <laughs> well, Ethan, you'll you'll learn with me every single time Jeff brings up like some sort of comparison. I'll be like, oh, it's the guys from this terrible movie that shouldn't like. He's bringing up Sean Connery's older films, and I was like, oh, you mean like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Oh my lord, no! Like uh, Robin and Marion, Robin and Marion. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but that's uh, we're we're all things to all people here uh, in mind space. There's room for, for many brains. So, so. Uh, Mr. Sachs, what, uh, what, what did you have for us? Give us a... Uh, so my first one is going to be a little bit of a cheat because um, I did a story for this Australian film magazine called Film Inc. where I interviewed a few... Actually, while I was interviewing them for the Daily News, I would talk to these directors and I'd always ask them last question, uh-huh. you know, what is your superhero movie or sci-fi movie that you would, you know, love to do that you haven't gotten, sure. you know, the, uh, approval for or whatever... And John Sales actually answered uh, Submariner, Namor, a, a fish out of, yeah. So I, I would have greenlit that right there. And That's I would amazing. say, I, and I was thinking I would uh, package it with Keanu Reeves because um, yeah. you, know, you need a haircut, but uh, we'd have yeah. to, you know, shave or not shave, but we'd have You'd to have cut to the hair out. a little bit. But I thought he would be perfect kind of brooding, um, and so I just thought that would be a magical combination for, for the Marvel. So Kevin Feige, give yeah. me a call. Well, I, we're going to stop and talk about this for a few minutes now. That, that's crazy balls. I love that. Uh, John Sales is, is amazing. And like yeah. Lone Star is, if I, whenever I, someone asks, you know, 10 favorite movies or whatever, it, Lone Star always makes it. I, I love that movie. And Sakaka Seven and yeah. and now like I think John Sales is amazing. Night on Earth. Uh, yeah, he's just um, under, he's underappreciated, I think, by uh, the mainstream because I I definitely think he's one of the top five directors of all time. I agree. I totally agree. And um, and Namor, there's something about that character that has uh, some real sticking power. People, uh, his name has come up in some interesting places. I uh, much like you when I when I had uh, access to like. Uh, Top, uh, big name movie stars and stuff. And I would always ask some random question at the end because if you get a good answer, it's a whole separate story. And you, you know, it, or it looks like you're just on the phone with these people all the time. You know, like you do one interview and you do three little uh, stories and then say one do one a week later. People are like, what? Do you just 
do you live with this person? You know, what? Um, but Clint Eastwood, I, he, I was talking to him and I said, you know, what do you think of all these superhero movies? And he goes, ah, it's, it's a load of crap, Jeff. Uh, uh, but he, uh, he said that he was offered Superman, you know, so I did a story on that, like, uh, yeah. you know, that he, uh, he was also offered that role, which would have been not a good idea. Uh, and, uh, at, at the end of that conversation, I said, who's your all time favorite comic book character? Namor, Clint Eastwood's favorite comic book character. Interesting. In and, his prime, in his prime, that would have been decent casting right there. He would have been a great Batman. You know, mm, he would yeah. have been a great Batman. I, I mean, Dirty Harry, you know, uh, listen to me, punk. I mean, yeah, it would have been fine. Uh, and he looked like Wolverine, you know, yes. 60s. You know, yeah, I mean, I always say this. My wife doesn't uh, agree with me, but I see, you know, Hugh Jackman and, and Clint Eastwood, a lot of Absolutely. similarities. Yeah, you know what? It's people aren't used to seeing Clint Young now. So you have to show her a picture. Go back and show her a picture from Rawhide. I'm serious. I like. Yeah. I've had this conversation with people, and I'd say the same thing. I'm like, I don't get it. Like, no, no, go back because we see him as a, a director now. And then um, Johnny Depp. That's his favorite comic book character as well. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he's always said that that was his favorite. It was Namor. Um, my favorite things about Namor is that his first appearance in Marvel Comics number one. Uh, or no, not he wasn't. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Marvel I Comics. I think he was. One. Yeah. Yeah, and. Um, it wasn't his first appearance, but like his second or third, he's in New York and he's pissed at the surface dwellers. Mm -hmm. So he goes to New York and he goes to the top of the Statue of Liberty and he grabs people and he throws them out and they die. <laughs> and then he flies away and then he goes back to the ocean and the other stuff happens. I'm like, what? Like, can you imagine like any other superhero just randomly killing five tourists uh, at yeah. Statue of Liberty and then you never hear about it again? It just kind of, uh, oh, that Namor, bad guy. Um, and my favorite bit of trivia about him is that Bill Everett, the guy that created him, he wanted a name that had sort of a, a aristocratic, patrician kind of sound. So uh, it's Roman spelled backwards. I never knew that. Isn't that great? Yeah. I love that. I was 47 years old when I, when I learned that. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so I love that. You win. You win uh, strong for that. Man, people not mine. It's John Sales. Just so we, we went strong for having it in the world, like bringing it out in the world. I can't believe John Sales wants to do name porn. That's amazing. Like my mind is racing with that stuff. So Evan, no pressure. Uh, <laughs> I was about to say, well, <laughs> I gotta follow that. Um, so for mine, one of my favorite Clint, not only Clint Eastwood movies, but war movies, is Kelly's Heroes. I'm not Ooh. sure if you guys have seen that. Sure. Um, I love the ensemble of characters. You know, you have Don Rickles, you have Telly Savalas. Um, you have the, uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but uh, he plays Oddball in it. Um, oh, yeah, that's uh, other one, Donald uh, Sutherland. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Donald Sorry to say. Um, <laughs> but I, I love the idea of these soldiers just like ditching the war and going off and, you know, trying to get rich. Um, and I thought that would be a really good concept with Star Wars stormtroopers. You know, like if you had a bunch of stormtroopers that were like just ditched the war and then they were um, oh, nice. trying to make it rich. However, oh, in that, wow. I, it would be hard for Star Wars, or I guess it would have to be stormtroopers because I, I originally wanted it to be rebels, but you can't see rebels like, you know, killing other rebels or, no, you know, but. No. You'd have to have some third party that they kill. Uh, it, yeah. But that would test your sympathy. But you could do the hand solo thing where they're kind of roguishly trying to do the right thing and ripping off. But I like. I like keep it pure. I think it, it, the Imperial heist. I think Imperial yeah. heist sounds good. Mm -hmm. You know, they kind of do it a little bit in Solo, where they 
you know, there's like that train bit where they're like after the gold, but I think like a whole story about just trying to make it rich in the Star Wars universe would be really cool. I like it. I, I yeah. think, that, all right, now I'm in third You place. had me at Star Wars as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, I forgot to say, with the director, which I know he probably is too old to do it now, but John McTiernan oh, well. would be my director. That's good. It's a great director. Did some of the great 80s, like some of the really best, you know, Die Hard, right? Yeah, and Predator. Yeah, some of the best. Um, Alan Rickman and Die Hard, just I love that. That's one of my all-time favorite performances. Um, okay, so the, another movie I would do is one of, you know, there's certain comic book runs that are just like, uh, just holy ground for me. Like they 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 represent something really special in storytelling. You know, I uh, and and one of them, I you know maybe my favorite, if I had to pick one favorite run of anything, was Alan Moore on on Swamp Thing. And uh, he took a character that uh, had some good pedigree, you know, uh, with, you know, uh, the Bernie Wrights and stuff was amazing in the seventies, but very, very different. And he completely rewired it, restructured it and added all this uh, mythology in all directions and, and the parliament of trees. And, and also had, you know, very elegant uh, uh, tangents where like there'd be a, uh, you know, an issue devoted to uh, Swamp Thing's sex life and, and hallucinogenic tubers that he grows that his, 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 his lover will eat to kind of interact with him. I mean, this is a little, this is not Teen Titans. I mean, this is a lot, of, there's a lot going on here. Um, so I would love to see that run, uh, the stories that it, it's, uh, it presented uh, on the big screen in a movie by Guillermo del Toro. Because I think if you saw... Pan's Labyrinth, and you, you think about the DC Universe, halfway between, you have Swamp Thing right there. That's that's halfway between DC and Pan's is the sweet spot, and I would love to see uh, I would love to see that happen somewhere on a movie screen. That'd be pretty cool. I'd like to see Guillermo's uh, Swamp Thing. He's like the king of monsters, right? So yeah, exactly, exactly, and he you know, and he did. Uh, Shape of Water, you know, which mm -hmm. kind of was a nod to the horror, uh, classic horror, uh, Merman, you know, from uh, Creature from Black Lagoon. So, you know, this this wouldn't be uh, this be familiar waters. See, that. <laughs> See what you did there. Yeah, he also he was attached to Justice League Dark, right? Which right. never seemed to. Uh, so he clearly loves the characters. That's right. Exactly. Um, so exactly. who would be Swamp Thing? You know, does it really matter? You know, like I mean, yeah. <laughs> Andy Circus. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it, it's we'll say it's Andy Circus and just hire some guy and see if anybody notices. No, <laughs> just joking. I'm just joking. The the key would be who would play Abby. You know, uh, who who what actress would be uh, able to uh, convincingly have chemistry with a guy that looks like a, a shambling fern. You know, that's yeah. that's the trick. So I, I'm not sure who that would be yet. But I'll say somebody, since we're saying people, uh, who would be strong? Uh, hmm. I don't, uh, I'll say Jennifer Lawrence. Since I can have anybody, I'll take Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. So now, Sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah. It's not as good as yours. Andy Serkis and Jennifer Lawrence in... Small thing. Small thing. Uh, it's better than man thing you know the, yes. the marvel equivalent and which led to the greatest comic book title ever which i own is giant size man thing number one <laughs> <laughs> it's a great t-shirt giant size man thing number one hi what's your name <laughs> it's awesome 
I love nickname it. I wish I had. Like, yeah, uh, nickname everybody wishes. That's why people can't make up their own nicknames because we would all have <laughs> nicknames that aren't true. Uh, what's uh, what's your next movie? What do you got? Uh, mine. Okay, so um, Guillermo del Toro is going to be a little busy uh, between <laughs> our movies. Um, so there was a sci-fi novel which I loved as a teenager called Hyperion. Uh, Dan Sim- Dan Simmons. Um, it is uh, just an award-winning, basically. As I recall, it's a bunch of pilgrims. It's sort of it's structured a little bit like Canterbury Tales. Okay. And it's a bunch of pilgrims sort of headed to these time tombs where there's this really fearsome being and he's sort of covered with spikes. And he eventually, like he impales people on this metal tree mm-hmm. with spikes. But their stories, it's one of these things where it's structured so they're telling their individual stories and they all sort of intertwine at some point or there's... So, um, but just, it, it's, it's incredibly, like you could actually do it as a six part event series for Netflix. Cause yeah. I think there are six chapters, I believe, or seven. And um, yeah. you, so you could do it episodic, uh, but I think Guillermo del Toro would be perfect for it. And nice. I only cast one because I, I, you know, the characters I remember, the, the chapter I remember most was this female private eye. And so I've always wanted, uh, Carrie Coon to play something because I mean she did such a great job with Fargo yeah um and I so I would love for her to to have you know more more and more screen time so uh that's a good one I like that yeah I like that I like it because it's uh you know it's not an adaptation of something you know so there's more discovery to it you know like uh that that's it I've never even heard of that book and that sounds great sounds really cool it was from uh the late 80s I believe yeah I read it in the late '80s, at least. But it's it's I, Dan Simmons. Uh, he did the Terror, the the book, uh, the Terror, that the AMC series. Oh yeah, just, sure. Yeah, yeah, he's it's really good. It's sort of horror sci-fi, but just personal drama as well. And it's uh, it's really it's really good. Yeah, it's got sort of a, a memoir or a diary kind of, not, not, uh, uh, yeah, a historical account kind of yeah. feel. Each, to it. each of the characters sort of has their own beat, so it's yeah, it's, uh, yeah. And it fits in the tradition of things like Hateful Eight or Stagecoach, you know, where you have people on a trip and, and yeah. communicating stuff. That's fun. All right. That's good. We like it. We, we, won't, we won't ever say no to anything, I don't think. But, but these are all great. So this, we're, we're, just, we're a bunch of geeks who are going to see everything that comes out. So Yeah, please hold on. By the way, I'm, I'm writing all these ideas down. Just, yeah. just letting <laughs> you guys know now. So, yeah. you know, in six months, he'll be in a corner office at a studio. That's right. <laughs> and we'll yeah. still be on the podcast. And he won't that's, why, that's why I need that release. <laughs> <laughs> I got to read it more closely. That's right. That's right. And we won't be able to get a call. We won't be able to get to answer our calls. And be like, hey, come on, dude. Oh, man. Uh, that's pretty funny. Now, um, there was a stage interview I did uh, when, um, back when I was at the Times doing Hero Complex, uh, I was lucky enough to do it as a film festival. Uh, a few, uh, like we did like three or four film festivals and had people come and I interviewed them on stage while we screened movies for people in LA. And it, it was one of my favorite things ever. It was just yeah. such, it was such a chance to be a ham, quite honestly. And then also to, to interview like tremendous people uh, talent and then best of all it was also your creation which yeah. is awesome oh thanks yeah. man yeah it was a hoot uh, it was really cool and uh uh and you know we we sold like a lot of tickets and and we, but we tried to keep them really cheap 
And it was such a great chance to meet fans and, and ended up, people would bring things like, I remember some person made a doll of me that they brought and they, people, you know, they would make stuff and dress up and we started putting props in the, the, the uh, lobby and stuff. It was a real thing and, and it was really wonderful. And the first year it started with a bang because I, I got three guests uh, and, you know, none of these people were paid. None of them were promoting anything. None of them had anything out even. Um, and, but it's not a shabby group. It was, uh, let's see, Leonard Nimoy, uh, Ridley Scott, and Christopher Nolan. So wow. yeah, it was like, pretty good. So we showed <laughs> Star Trek um, four, and I interviewed Leonard. And then day two, we had, uh, 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 we showed, uh, which one did we show? We showed uh, the Insomnia. Excuse me, it took me a second for Nolan. I knew we did an offbeat one. And that's why he did it, is because we showed Insomnia. Uh, he was really excited because he's like, he didn't think that that film got enough attention. I'm like, oh, it's such a good movie. And uh, and then Ridley, we did Alien and Blade Runner, double feature, mm. which is really cool. Um, but God, I would have loved to have been there. It was great. It was really great. Uh, and uh, they all showed up. That's the main thing. <laughs> I was so relieved. I didn't think anyone would show up. I really didn't. Uh, but Nolan really surprised me because we started talking about a movie I would not have guessed that he would like um, but he's a big director of the fan. Alan, he's a big director, uh, Alan Parker, who just recently died, the great British director who did so many movies with music. You know, he did The Commitments, he did Avida, he directed Midnight Express, which won an Oscar for its uh, music, uh, Giorgio Moroder. Uh, he did uh, the, I said Commitments already. Uh, he also did, uh, there's another big music one. I can't think. Oh, yeah, Pink Floyd The Wall. Uh, he directed Pink Floyd, The Wall, and Nolan loves that film. He was like, I, I adore that movie. Like, and he talked at length about it and how much he liked the idea of that kind of movie that uh, put together things like animation and real uh, in-camera stuff and uh, puppets and, you know, what have you. Um, and so that really intrigues me. And I think it'd be really cool if you think about Nolan's uh, ability to communicate realities that are shifting, you know, like, uh, you know, whether it's fear toxin in, in Gotham city or insomnia in Alaska, or, uh, uh, you know, being, uh, in a dream, people are their perception. They can't trust their perception in any of the Nolan movies. There's always some moment where, you know, if it's amnesia, you know, he always messes with people's ability to track what's going on and in the tenant it's with time. You know, so that's really what his movies are about. Is like, is the unreliability of perception, prestige, magic tricks. Um, God, it's, we could write a book on that. I didn't even like put it all together like that. Uh, but he said um, that the 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 reality bending of the wall was really uh, fascinating to him, and so I'd like to see him do that. Mm. And then for the star, that's a little tricky um, on who would star in it. I, you know, I'm not really sure. Um, who I would pick. I, you know, it would have been great to see uh, somebody like David Bowie in that. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on a star for that? I don't know. Mm, that's a good... I had one before and I can't remember who I picked. <laughs> I need to think about... Yeah, David yeah. Bowie would be perfect. I'm trying to think of who... Um, I feel like it's a bit of a cheat, but I, I Ewan McGregor popped to mind. Oh, but yeah. I, I think yeah. those probably because of 
pelvic yeah. coal mine. Yeah. I knew who I was thinking of was Jared Alito. I was thinking of him or, um, you know, uh, Russell Brand in a, in a strange way, you know, like you could really, because he's got that dark side to him. Uh, yeah. You know, something like that. So that's that one. Uh, I, you know, it'll never happen now, though. You know why? Is because of uh, Roger Waters. Uh, from, oh, the rights issues? Or? Well, no, you know, he's now a Holocaust denier. So I don't think that there's anybody that's going to want to do it. You know, uh, yeah. so we sort of took that off the ball, out of the ballpark. So do you have another one, Mr. Sachs? Uh, by the way, my cats are fighting in the background. Um, so <laughs> just in case. Oh, over this? Are they fighting over this? I don't know. They really had a strong reaction about they like Pink Floyd the wall. So I guess. Um, They're upset about the Roger Waters. News. Yes, they, they were very upset. David um, Cope, actually, I, I do have something I've always wanted selfishly to see. There's a comic book series that uh, debuted or ran on uh, with uh, the Epic line from Marvel in the, in the late 80s called Alien Legion. Um, yeah. yeah, the main creator was Karl Potts. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's basically war, a, a war story set in space. Um, and uh, I thought Catherine Bigelow would be a, a, a very good, you oh. know, obviously she has a great track record with, with war movies that, you know, focus a lot on the soldiers. It isn't just sort of the pyrotechnics. And um, so I thought she'd be perfect. And I, the characters won't mean much to anybody, but one of the breakout characters uh, was uh, Jugger Grimrod, which is kind of a Wolverine type character. It's kind of like a little bit of an assassin, but I thought he sort of speaks at the time. I thought it was a little bit of an Irish type brogue or, or something, or British sort of his, his, uh, his um, you know, sort of mannerisms. Um, so I thought actually Jason Statham would be perfect for him. Oh, that's good. And then uh, the, the sort of major character who, who sort of has a snake half to him, which we could do in CGI, but I, I, would, I, I would follow Idris Elba into the gates of hell. So I sort of would love for him to, to be the leader of the group. Um, that's great. Yeah, so obviously the, the names may not mean, uh, the characters may not mean that much to people, but uh, I do recommend checking out. There are trades out there for Alien Legion. Uh, it, it survived past Marvel. I think... Uh, I'm trying to remember the the smaller publishers that that published. Uh, yeah. but anyway, there's some just really great trades out there. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. You know, and when you said Statham, he he would be a great bullseye. Yeah, he um, would. Know, he would be a really good been. good bullseye. I mean, he, he would beat up whoever played Daredevil. You know. Yeah. Whether it's Affleck or Charlie Cox or whoever. Oh yeah. I, I just yeah. feel like be a mismatch. Up both of them. Uh, <laughs> Daredevil. Same time. And it's actually surprising to think that he hasn't already been in the Marvel universe. Yeah. 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 Uh, he really wants to be, but uh, I talked to him about it once, but he refuses to be anything but a hero. He doesn't want to be a villain. Interesting. Oh, he'd be such a good villain though. I know. Cause I, I actually, this I mean, whole, he was a I, villain in, in the Fast and Furious franchise. Yeah. I think well, this, I is, he was a hero again. this is years ago too, that where I talked to him. I mean, this is uh, cause I introduced him to Frank Miller at Comic-Con one year. Like, uh, oh, wow. I was at, I was over at the hard rock and uh, I see Jason Statham walk by and I, I just did a panel with Frank Miller, uh, but it was the spirit that year. That, yeah. And Sam Jackson, Samuel Jackson was on the panels. And I see him and I don't know him. And I walk up and I just start talking to him. And I said, you know, you'd be great, you know, uh, in, in a Frank Miller comic book because his world is so gritty. And he's like, I love Frank Miller. That guy's a genius. God, I, I'd do anything to work with Frank Miller. And I go, really? Would you like to meet him? And he goes, 
yeah, of course, I would do anything to meet Frank. I'm like, <laughs> like, okay. And Frank is staying in that hotel and has just walked by and is on the way to the room. And I call him and say, come back. And he goes, okay. And then so Frank Miller walks in. So Statham looks at him, looks at me like, how did you do that? <laughs> you know, like, so it was really great. I really played it well. Uh, but anyway, I, I suggested to him that day that he played Bullseye. And he got kind of pissed off about it. He's like, no, you know, I don't want to be the villain. I want to be the hero. Mm. But that's a while ago. So he might, he might change his mind. Because the villains are, that's the, the role you want. I mean, the villains are, yeah. you know, Nicholson gets the top billion in Batman, not Keaton. You know? Yeah, exactly. The, the hero is basically a, a straight man to the, to the villain performance on most of these movies. Villains have initiative. Heroes are yeah. just waiting. You know, they just wait around. And like, villains are at least doing stuff, you know, they're proactive. Yeah. So, uh, Ethan, uh, I'm sorry, Ethan, now we're on to Evan. Evan, yeah. what is your uh, next? Do you have one? Well, I have like a, just a director and then an idea, not sure. necessarily like something fully fledged out, but something I always thought was really cool is like the, the Blue Beetle and uh, Booster Gold duo. Oh, yeah. And my favorite duo director, of course, is Shane Black. And so oh, I'd love to see that combination. But I need help. I need you guys as the comic book guys to help me on who you think would be a good Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. Ooh. Like Ryan I, Gosling might be able to come back. I, I've got it. Gold. I've got it. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, don't hang up. <laughs> don't, don't end the podcast right when I say this. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Oh my gosh. Nice. Right. Just be because they would, people would just pay the money just to see them bicker with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Ben Affleck has played every other hero anyway. So <laughs> I'll, would have I'll, to, yeah. I'll see your Ben Affleck <laughs> in Matt Damon and raise you. Uh, I'll say, uh, uh, what about uh, Owen Wilson and Ben Stiller? <laughs> oh, okay. That different tone, but I, I, that is very good. That is very good. <laughs> it's got a different vibe, yeah. yeah. I don't know if the Booster Gold, that one's, maybe that's more of Bradley Cooper. I don't know. <laughs> It's gonna be like yeah. someone like super cocky and like full of himself. Yeah, I right? like that though. You know, DC DCU could use like a little bit of a tonal. You know, the same way they do with Shazam. They yeah, and you know what? I think for the laughs. If if I was running DC, you know what I would do next is, and this is why I'm not running DC. Swamp Thing. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, exactly. But even before that, because I think it would make tons of money, is I do a damn Broadway musical. Like why? Why not? I mean, look at like this. Forget Spider-Man because that's a special case because of the webbing and you have to swing around. And I mean, just from the that alone, it's already like trapeze work. So you're not going to get the same acting talent and it's going to change the dynamics and priorities. But you could do a Harley Quinn musical. Good God. It would, it would blow up. It would be huge, you know. In the 60s, there was a Superman musical. That's great. That's yeah. right. Sorry, it starred Bob Holiday and it was called... Uh, it's a bird, it's the plane, it's Superman. And on yep. stage, they constructed a giant. Like, it looked like, a, 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 imagine the panels of like a, a Peanuts cartoon in the newspaper. The like three panels across, you know, three panels deep, but different sizes. And with stairs hidden behind it, and they would act out in the, in the, the yeah, frame. I mean, it's actually very clever for its time. And I think, if yeah. I recall, I, I did interview him once for Wizard Magazine, but he, uh, they sort of blame because uh, I think Batman, the TV series, came out right around and sort of sucked the oxygen out of the, out of yeah. So it didn't last all that long. But yeah, it's, if I recall, I I may be mixing up the dates. No, it's it's right. I think it's right after. But it it, it, it I think it it did. Uh, yeah, I think it was because it, 
I think it was like 69. So I think Batman was okay. off. But I'm not. Well, he, I think he blamed the Batman TV series. Yeah. Yeah. If I, think, I recall from the interview. Yeah. So, yeah. Because yeah. it's set in stone what people wanted. And they were doing something that was closer to, you know, uh, to uh, Metropolis that Dick Donner would do. But uh, yeah, I just think like there, there's, it'd be really interesting to see some uh, comedic stuff you know and i think that dc has the possibility to do, of that you know and i don't think a deadpool musical uh, yeah i mean marvel has funny characters but that would be tough to pull off um i mean we were talking maybe it was two weeks ago jeff uh not maybe for a musical but just in general but like seeing it how plastic man could fit in the dc universe they're creating or if it's even possible at this point i for stage play that would not work i don't <laughs> I, I think that would not work but i think as an animated film that would be like if if, if dc wanted to match uh spider-man uh in spider-verse energy and that that sense that here's not just a great successful crowd-pleasing uh comic book inspired animated movie here's uh it's one that's going to use form and push the envelope and do things you haven't seen before and 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 access the character's unique things. Spider-Man moves differently than any other character. Um, you know, the, the multi multiverse aspect is already established in the mythology and stuff. So they, they really kind of intuitively uh, found visual representations of that. And I think Plastic Man would be the one that for DC would allow them to really kind of tap into a different energy. If they went back to the 40s version, which is very, very different than the 1980s, like TV animated series that some people will remember uh the original comics had they were, they were really really revolutionary and, and, and bold in, in the way that the character represented the storytelling the shape and also the way the frames of the page would change and the way the character would break the fourth wall all those kind of things a lot like deadpool with that aspect you know so uh ethan i can't tell you how nice it is to have you here and uh what a fun show this is one of my favorite episodes that we've done so like i really really appreciate you doing this uh, one of the things that we do at the end of the show is we have a thing called the essential shelf where we take a classic graphic novel or comic book run and, and we give it the hall of fame treatment. And, um, I, I usually pick them, but this week, since, uh, I respect your taste so much, I was going to ask you if you were uh, willing to go out on the limb here and pick out a hall of fame level entry for our essential shelf. Well, definitely one that is on my uh, bookshelf always is um, a 1982 graphic novel uh, uh, writer, Chris Claremont, and uh, artist Brent Anderson, and it's X-Men, God Loves, Man Kills. Uh, it was the inspiration for the second X-Men movie, um, basically a sort of televangelist behind the scenes is whipping up this anti-mutant um, sentiment, and it's very, very much an album allegory that is unfortunately timely yeah. as timely in 2020 as it is ever um you know about bigotry and um it's uh, i recently reread it and it's just as powerful as it was when i was nine and read it for the first time i uh, i so remember that book so i had such a vivid recollection of buying it reading it being powerfully affected by it reading it again and again and again and then it was one of my go-to books for years uh it's so satisfying and it, the way it presents the X-Men as a team is really fascinating. And, and not only did it influence uh, 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 the X-Men 2, Brian Singer's X-Men 2, but I think it influenced his first one. You know, the scene that when the X-Men film first opens, the first movie opens, uh, it starts off uh, at a scene in a concentration camp. And, and you see 
it, and it powerfully uh, tells the audience that this is not a funny book movie. This is going to be like a serious thing. I mean, that's like the most powerful setting you could you could start with emotionally and, and charged, emotionally charged, and it pulls it off. And, and there's a playground scene in God Loves, Man Kills, where Magneto is go, uh, where two kids have been killed uh, because they're mutants and uh, they've been essentially uh, lynched and, and propped up. And uh, it reminds me so much. And I, and I really do wonder if, if Brian Singer took that opening idea of, of you know, or if it was inspired at least in tone by God Loves, Man Kills, but it's such a, such a great story. You know, yeah, definitely, definitely up there. And uh, the artist uh, Brent Anderson, this guy did Kazar. The, the the art is really fantastic too. It, it's understated, and he didn't do a ton of X Men stuff, did he? No, I I don't think so. I mean, I you know a lot of this is a little bit of that time. You know, I was um, nine when I was sort of first discovering, especially because Marvel was was really introducing the graphic novel. Um, and it was so different from the regular X-Men comics that I was reading that it was like a gut punch. So I think it was a little bit more adult. Um, and because of that, uh, sure. there, there was something kind of unique in the time, you know, to have these superheroes doing it in a very adult story, uh, which of course, obviously we were talking about Frank Miller, uh, you know, it, it was a turning point in general. Uh, a golden age, really. Not the golden age, but a golden age. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And Chris Claremont, you know, uh, yeah. who did that Wolverine series with Frank Miller around the same time, uh, if I remember right, the, the yeah. mini series that uh, was ended up influencing Wolverine, um, the, the film, the, uh, you know, recently, uh, rel relatively recently. Um, boy, that's a great pick. I'm jealous. I wish I had done that one first. A bit. <laughs> and thank you so much for picking something I really like. I was worried you... I wasn't really worried. That's why I let you do it. But, you know, there's always that trepidation. All right, my friend. Well, this is uh, a bit of mar marathon, and I really do appreciate your patience. Congratulations. Always a pleasure to talk to you and a pleasure to meet Evan. Yeah, it was nice to meet you, man. I'll, uh, we'll stay in touch for sure. Yeah, and just remember us when you get that corner off. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely will. Yeah, it sounds great. And then we'll look for that book in December. And the title of it one more time is... COVID Chronicles. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Josh Neufeld. Uh, so that's one that people should check out. And it sounds like this one is going to be a, a really good one that he's working on, uh, that Ethan's working on. Definitely, definitely. And, uh, you, you know, you guys had, you had brought him in kind of like what we've done in the past for the essential shelf. And we finally got an X-Men story, which is good. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, when he said it, I was so happy because it's actually, it's my favorite X-Men story. And, and that's, that's saying a lot because I, I love Days of Future Past, you know, which X-Men issue 141, 142. I, uh, I love the, 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 you know, Dark Phoenix saga, you know, playing out, you know, all through the 130s issues. But uh, God Loves Man Kills, which has Chris Claremont writing and, and Brent Anderson on uh, the art. Um, it was, it was an oversized book, you know, graphic novel. It, it came out as one of the first Marvel graphic novels published. The first one being death of Captain Marvel. And then, uh, it, it would have been, you know, just a few after that. And it, it was such a powerful story and, 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 um, uh, it such a strong message of, of tolerance and, uh, circling hypocrisy and, 
uh, the abuses of power. So it fits in the great traditions of Stan Lee and, uh, and his sort of uh, comics as a lightning rod for, uh, you know, social activism and, and uh, kind of ethical uh, morality plays, uh, the way that the stories were told and the underpinnings in them. Mm-hmm. So it fits in that great tradition. And Chris Claremont, just a great writer uh, for any medium. And uh, so it was a great, great choice. And it's a terrific comic book. And I, I give it like 10 out of 10. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, I'm definitely going to check that out. You know, the only X-Men story I've ever read was one of the really old, old, like Jack Kirby. Is that right? Uh-huh. It was sure. an old Jack Kirby one where the big robots from space come to try to capture all the mutants. Oh, sure. The Sentinels. Sentinels. Yeah. The Sentinels come down and then um, yeah, they're the saved Sentinel. by the guardians of the galaxy. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I, th- I thought at first I thought it was, well, and Kirby, uh, let's see. Cause maybe it wasn't Kirby, but yeah, that, if the guardians were in it, I don't think it was Kirby, but he did, um, he did, he did the first appearance of the Sentinel, Sentinels, which, uh, uh, it's around issue 13 or something, 1964. Um, the X-Men, you know, didn't, weren't a hit, you know, when they came out, uh, the comic book lasted for a while, but then it, it went into reprints and then, you know, basically had to be rebooted and relaunched, uh, in 1975 thereabouts. Uh, and that's when it really took off and it was the best selling Marvel comic book throughout the eighties. Uh, and, uh, um, well, it was with the introduction of Wolverine, right? That kind of revived it. Yeah. You know, he had been created and introduced in uh, the Hulk as just a throwaway character. And that was probably going to be the end of him. And at that time, he's a very different character. Like the claws weren't attached to him. They were on gloves. Like mm. you can take them off. Uh, you know, he, they didn't really explain uh, his powers in a way that would be familiar to, to readers now. Uh, but he was part of that that re- relaunch with uh, Giant Size X Men number one that uh, brought in Wolverine uh, and Storm, held over Cyclops, introduced Nightcrawler, you know that whole great lineup, and uh, you know Beast history was made. Was, was Beast part of that new lineup, or was he in the original? Not at that point. Beast was one of the the founding members. If you go back to '63, it was Iceman, uh, you know Bobby Drake, and uh, so Iceman, Beast, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, which is Jean Grey, but she rarely uses that name anymore, and Angel, uh, the angel with the white wings. Gotcha. Uh, and the Beast wasn't furry in those days. He was just big, and he had oversized hands and feet. He didn't, he didn't grow the blue fur in, um, until uh, the 70s. Gotcha. That's, that's, when, that's when hair was in. You know, Everybody was <laughs> yeah. shaggy. That's true. It's a good time. It's a good time to be... If you're going to have the ultimate chest hair, that's the decade you want it. <laughs> that's when you want to release all your hairy characters. Oh, please. Absolutely. Imagine if they had released, you know, the universal Wolfman during the seventies. Yeah. It, if he had a gold chain on and a <laughs> uh, polyester shirt, hair I think product. It, it would have been basically John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, but <laughs> just a little furrier. <laughs> so. That's funny. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool. Um, I'm definitely gonna check out that X Men story. I'm always looking for more X Men in my life. Yeah, yeah. I would. Those those are. I think uh, God loves man kills, and then 
uh, Days of Future Past. Those are just so great. Those are a great place to start. And the Phoenix Saga can't be can't be undersold. It was a it was a really poignant, uh, great emotional, evocative writing. I, we should have Chris Claremont on sometime. Um, I've never ever talked to him, which wow. is amazing to me at this <laughs> point. That's a very small pool of people. You know, you would think I would have talked to him by now, but uh, it hasn't happened. So I'm excited to uh, pursue that. If if we uh, if we can make it happen, I will. Definitely. Um, and uh, to our listeners out there, definitely check out God Loves Men Kills, COVID Chronicles by the great Ethan Sachs. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's good to be reading X-Men stuff because as we know, it's just, you know, the clock is ticking for when they're introduced into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, yeah, I can't wait to see that. I really can't wait to see it. I, I think we're, it would have been great if we saw the chance for Hugh Jackman's Wolverine to get, to try to be a can opener on Tony Stark's, uh, <laughs> on uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man. I think that that, I'm sad to see that we don't get that showdown. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, Iron Man versus Magneto, which would be the single shortest fight in the history <laughs> yeah, of superhero true. movies. <laughs> Do you think Magneto could take uh, Captain America's shield? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah that'd be that would be funny too. Wouldn't that be like a great Captain America throws a shield and then it just he just stays, just stays. Yeah, <laughs> like thanks, I yeah. needed that. If you think about the Avengers, just how they are, Magneto could take down over half of them. Oh yeah, just easily. Yeah, yeah. you know who's sure. greatest greatest enemy? Who's the Magneto? Hulk. Yeah. Oh, the Hulk. Yeah, the Hulk's a problem. That would be a problem. <laughs> unless he unless he took his belt buckle off or something. You know? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Well. Um, on that, you know, I, unless there's anything else, I think that's the end of the episode. I think, uh, it, it was a good one as a long one. Uh, everybody that's still with us are the real, the <laughs> real, the apex nerds. Yeah. And, definitely. Uh, we love you. Well, Jeff, it was good to talk to you this week and I'll talk to you again next week. Sounds good. Pilgrim. <laughs> All right. All right. See you.